Hey, hey, bingers. Today, I'm joined by two guests who work on the opposite side of the courtroom than where I typically reside. As you know, I spend most of my time working on wrongful conviction cases and beating up on prosecutors. But these two folks represent the right way to do things. Please welcome the hosts of the Prosecutors Podcast, my friends, Brent and Alice. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. I'm joined by the hosts of the Prosecutors Podcast, Brett, looking super professional in his uh, studio microphone and his headphones, and uh, Alice is in a closet and has been trying to turn a computer on for the last half hour. This is completely true, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> no one who listens to the podcast will be surprised by this. <laughs> <laughs> there might be some technical difficulties, and and. As always, I always like to point out, and Alice, you're out of, out of out of 59 guests. I think that you are probably number 55 that is recording in a closet, so you're in good company. There you go. You really can't beat it. I've tried other places. I've tried pillows, hiding under blankets, and look, these clothes know what they're doing. <laughs> right, yeah, right. No echo in there at all. And you have a couple of kids, don't you? Oh, yeah. And like, I mean, nothing's echoing up there either, because I don't know if they're up there or not. that's nice i know when i started recording truth and justice i I started out in my garden shed because i have four kids at the time all four in the house and two german shepherds and there was not a quiet place anywhere in the house anywhere so i gave up bless you (laughs) german shepherds are the best dogs though they are i have two oh you know what i'm gonna share something right it just occurred to me that this won't air until after it happens so I told a story a couple of weeks ago when I had, um, I, that might have been Truth and Justice, but I had uh, Jillian Pensavalli on, and we always ended up talking about dogs. And last year, when we moved into this house two years ago, our neighbor's dog adopted us. They had a German short hair that just ran around, and like they ran loose, and then we have a dog door, and she literally just moved in and became our dog, which was super awkward because we hadn't met the neighbors yet. It was like a year later, we finally met. <laughs> we finally met him. I'm like, so we, we have your dog. Like, if that's cool, because he's a real big dude. I mean, I'm a big dude, but he's like a foot taller than me. He's massive. I'm like, wow. you can have her back. <laughs> but, so how did he take it? Was he like, thanks, because they're really expensive to feed? Oh, yeah. He, he, was, he, was, he was like, I wondered where she's been sleeping at night, because they have like a kennel in their garage. Uh, but sadly, we had to put her down uh, this spring. She, she was old. She lived a nice long life. Uh, but my wife, all the kids, but especially my wife and my daughter have been harassing me. To get another dog. But I've always said for years, because my wife always wants every puppy, and every time she shows me one, I say, you get two dogs. That's it. You have two dogs. So then when when Mackenzie passed, she's been harassing me about another dog, and I continue to tell her you get two dogs. But now they have an argument that we had three dogs for a year. And we we live out in the country. We have five acres out here. But a friend of mine, I just found out I was playing cards with last week, actually raises German short hairs and has a batch of puppies right now. Wow. And so- Top secret, don't tell my wife. Next on Sunday, I'm bringing her home a brand new German Shepherd puppy. Oh my well, that's goodness. Awesome. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. 
And so uh, she, because we have, as I mentioned, we have four kids. So the naming process of a pet is kind of a, uh, mm. a challenge. So I'm just going to name it. And it's a boy. So the other dog's name was Mackenzie. It was a girl dog. And this is a boy dog. And so I'm just going to name it Mac and bring Perfect. it Perfect. Yeah. See, isn't that amazing? Love it. Love it. And then, Love it. And then nobody gets to argue. I'm going to get like an embroidered collar that says Mac <laughs> on it. So that never like, it's, he already like, has a name. Late. Sorry. Got a collar. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. They're like, we want the dog. Got to take Mac. Right, yep. right. <laughs> he already answers to Mac. Sorry. Mm-hmm. That's it. Uh, do you guys have any pets? So I have a, a half German short-haired pointer, half coonhound. So he, oh, really? he's, he's crazy. Yeah. So he, his, you know, his breeding sort of conflicts. So mm-hmm. he'll tree something and he'll do the perfect point, but he just can't hold it because then the coonhound comes in and he has to start barking. It's like, which right. kind of defeats <laughs> the purpose, you know? So, so he'd be a but, terrible bird dog then. Right? He would be a terrible bird dog. He's just howling at the pheasants while you're trying to exactly. get him to shut up and point. <laughs> for, like, for like a split second, he'll do the point, and then he just loses it and chases, chases whatever it is. So. But he's a great dog. Our production manager, Erica, takes baths with her lizard. And I love That's that what she I've heard. can't That's nice. defend herself right now. Mm-hmm. So we're, you missed that conversation, Alice. Her I knew there were disgusting. costs to having technological difficulties. I didn't know the cost was so high. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's it. We talked about lizards. We ran out of things to talk about while we were waiting for you. Uh, any any pets in the in the Alice home? Uh, so we had we're a German Shepherd family. We had a long haired German Shepherd, and she's amazing, and she's still alive. She's good, except that pesky thing called kids. My son became allergic to a dog. You're like not that's not supposed to happen. I was pregnant I with the dog, and he became allergic to her, and so she lives with family, and she's like down the street. Which is great, oh, but I cried so hard that my mom actually asked me, do you want me to take your son instead? And I was like, I feel like society <laughs> frowns upon it. Right, yeah. If you just don't tell anybody if you do something like that. But the like, birth announcements already went out. Mm. Right, right. And so, so both of you are, are former prosecutors. You both uh, went to very prestigious schools. Uh, if my notes are correct, Brett, you went to Harvard. And, That's right. And Alice, you went to Yale. Is there like a rivalry between those two schools? I mean, there is. You know, it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of a pathetic rivalry. I mean, Alice is from Texas, and I'm from Alabama, so we we know about real rivalries. And then the folks at at Harvard and Yale. Are you an Alabama fan? A, I am. I am. I'm, How was your weekend? <laughs> I'm currently in mourning. It's been a rough couple days, but you heard him say I'm from Texas. So any Texas team that beats Bama. Is my team. See, I have an argument yeah. with Alice about this because she's from Austin, and <laughs> right. I, I, all the people in Austin are like falling over dead right now listening to that. But it's fine. It's fine. Look, it, all I'm saying is, is Texas is greater drug. than Alabama this weekend. So you know, us as a <laughs> right. state just and, won. And so I, I don't know when this is going to air. So just so people know what's going to happen is Alabama, the dynasty of the year that was yeah, was pegged to be a. A contender for the national championship got their asses kicked by Texas A&M this weekend. We lost in a last-second field goal. Let's be clear. <laughs> asses kicked. They got their asses. It was glorious. It was glorious. <laughs> Speaking of last-second field goals, did you watch any NFL games this weekend? I watched the one that had five straight missed field goals. That was the one I saw. I don't watch a whole lot of football. I happen to turn on the, the Green Bay Bengals game, and I watched from two minutes left in the fourth quarter 
till overtime, five missed field goals. I know, and I was thinking, why can't we just have one of those? You know, we didn't need five. We just needed one missed field goal, but couldn't nope. get that. No, nope. Texas A&M whipped your ass with that mm-hmm. uh, last-minute field goal. <laughs> Uh, so I, I guess getting to know a little bit, I'll start, I'll start with you, Brett. Uh, so I know you work for a prosecutor, you work for the state, the federal government, you clerk for judges. Are you in private practice now? We're actually still prosecutors. We're active prosecutors. Alice and still I work prosecutors. together. prosecutors. Yeah, we share a wall. Um, you know, we'll be back at it tomorrow. Had the day off, but yeah, that's what oh, we're wow. doing. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to have some questions for you guys about, uh, prosecutors and the legal system here shortly. But before I have that, I have Erica. Erica wrote down for me that that you love abandoned buildings, long walks on haunted beaches, and and surprisingly, I don't have any questions about either of those two things. Uh, what I have a question about is she said that you like Chithulhu plushies. What the <laughs> hell is 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 she? Does she is that a tight? Did she have a stroke when she was making this, or is that a thing? <laughs> it's Cthulhu, Bob. Cthulhu. It's, it's a it's a cultural phenomenon. You may have seen him <laughs> on South Park, for instance. Uh, but yeah, they make okay. little plushies. He's this, he's this creature from horror who's like this evil, demonic, ancient god that wants to destroy the world. And so they make these cute little plushies of him. <laughs> and yeah, they're great. <laughs> do, do you collect them? No, I don't, I don't collect them. I mean, my, my daughter may own many, many, many at this point. She... <laughs> And has no idea what they are, but I don't collect right. them. She does. <laughs> Can you pronounce that for me again? Cthulhu. Cthulhu. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and now you're a prosecutor. Your wife is an attorney also. Is that right? She is. What, what type of attorney is she? She's in private practice. So, but she doesn't, she doesn't do criminal law. So we don't, you know, it's not like we're fighting it out in the courthouse or anything. You don't butt heads. That would be a rough, a rough night at home if you guys yeah, had a trial yeah. against each other. I think, I don't think you could do that. <laughs> There are probably yeah. ethical concerns anyway, but even if there weren't, you wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> right. So I, I'm here with you and your wife both being at- attorneys. Uh, what, what have you, how old are you? You have one daughter, right? I have, well, actually I have two kids. I have one daughter who's two, and then we just had a son who's four months. At what age do you teach them to never talk to police and always ask for a lawyer? As soon as possible. As soon I mean, I, you know. The official position as a prosecutor is you should always talk to the police and tell them everything. I was going to say, <laughs> so now you being a prosecutor, obviously you want them to talk to police, but what advice will you be giving your children? Just, you know, know your rights and assert them. <laughs> <laughs> always. Never always. wave them, ever. Exactly. Never wave them. I give the same advice to mine. And now, and, and Alice, is, is your husband, I, I see that you met your husband in law school. Is he also an attorney? That was very good um, deduction. Yes, he's also a lawyer. <laughs> right. A lot of people flunk out of law school, especially Yale, I would think. <laughs> you know, when um, uh, when I introduced my now husband to my dad, the first thing he said, I said, you know, I am dating a classmate of mine in law school. And he said, is he employable? <laughs> that tells you everything you need to know about Yale. <laughs> you got some pretty high standards from, from dad, too, it seems like. <laughs> like uh, but yes, he's oh. also an attorney. <laughs> Yeah, we're just covered up in lawyers over here. Yeah, your your employer is, uh, or excuse me, your your boyfriend is in law school at Yale, and he's concerned that he may not be <laughs> employable. I think it says more about Yale than anything. <laughs> oh, gotcha. So, are you conceding that that Harvard is is better? 
Oh, it's no contest when it comes to who teaches the law. Harvard wins by far. Right. We have more street cred. You know, we've had a lot of movies made about us and stuff. I mean, Legally Blonde, you know, you've, can't beat that. Brett, you've, you've, got that, you've got that Southern draw. Uh, do you ever, when you tell people you're from Harvard, like slip into kind of a, a bit of like a British accent, kind of like a, I'm from, <laughs> I went to Harvard, anything well, like that? I have a similar story to Alice's, a little different. When I was, a, I was going to Harvard, it was my first year, and I'd come back home here to Alabama. And I went out with a friend, and we went to a bar, and the waitress was this really pretty girl. And my friend goes, yeah, he goes to Harvard. And she says, oh, really? Where's that? It's like, yeah, doesn't really. It's kind of like Yale for Alice. Doesn't really matter. (laughs) (laughs) Here in the real world, nobody cares. Right. Nobody gives a shit. Harvard (laughs) is in Alabama. So uh, now, am I to understand, Alice, that you didn't originally want to be an attorney? Oh, no. Well, I didn't know anything about the law. I didn't know. I come from an immigrant family, so I didn't know lawyers. I didn't know that was a thing you did. Um, Uh And yeah, I wanted to be an economist. How not boring is that for those of you who are economists? But I thought I wanted to write, you know, uh, (laughs) numbers all day. That was your dream. That was like I thought you were gonna be like I wanted to be like a marine biologist. Or, no, it was my dream. Wanted... I uh, I had a small view of the world. <laughs> I truly that was my dream, and I did it for a year. And I was like, wow, this is no longer my dream. <laughs> this sucks, right? Yeah. <laughs> so so how did you convert from being an economist to being a lawyer? It's not that hard actually, because lawyers are terrified of numbers and math, and so I could just like spout equations, and they'd be like. Okay, cool. You must understand the law because you understand math. That's not true, by the way. (laughs) I know a lot of lawyers. I've never seen one of them doing like an algebraic equation. Never, never. We don't even do simple math. That's why we're (laughs) lawyers. There are no math classes in law school. (laughs) (laughs) None at all. So what was it like? What made you decide when you decided you didn't want to do uh, to be an economist? What made you decide you wanted to be a lawyer? I mean, uh, you know, there's so much. I, I. I worked in a law school um, helping the lawyers do econ and math, to be honest. (laughs) And I saw Uh it and I I thought, you know, I wanted to, this is going to sound very idealistic, but I wanted to make an impact, you know, on my Mm -hmm. community. Um, My parents came over with very little. My, you know, grandparents had very little because they were refugees. And I just kind of saw how special um, the American system was um, that, you know, justice is blind. And I know that's idealistic, but I saw that for the first time. And I thought, I, you know, this is, this is a calling. Um, and I kind of wanted to do like generations of my family proud. That That's an amazing story. Brett just was in it for the paycheck, I think. He was in it for the pretty girls who didn't know where Harvard was. Right. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work out for me very well. <laughs> yeah, this, this is the problem. People ask this story or this question. Alice has this amazing story. And I just like, well, I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> I was a philosophy major in college, so there wasn't really much else to do. We go to law school. You're either going to go to law school or teach philosophy. Yeah, or starve to death, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and let's talk about the real answer. My boyfriend slash now husband also went to that law school. <laughs> ah, there it is. So and and what go. kind of law does he practice? Uh, the complete opposite, not criminal law, <laughs> and which is really good. We have completely different skill sets and hardly ever talk about the law at home, which is good for our marriage. 
Yeah, yeah. Again, it would be rough if he was a like a criminal defense attorney. Ooh, yeah. No, no. We we mostly talk about um, you know, whatever team's beating Bama. <laughs> obsession, obsession. Uh, I'm used to it. So, so I, I want to ask you guys a, a serious question. You you worked? Have either of you ever worked as defense attorneys, or have you always been on the prosecution side? I have been a defense attorney, but in like a big law firm. So, you know, mm-hmm. it was more corporate law, wasn't, wasn't criminal defense work. So that's my, my defense experience. And, and was, I was very disillusioned <laughs> by that experience. And it's one of the reasons that I decided to go the public, the public service route. Didn't really enjoy the, the big law firm defending the big corporation mm-hmm. thing. It wasn't the kind of thing that made me want to get out of bed, you know. Like six o'clock in the morning, and then go to bed at four o'clock in the morning the next day. So, but no, never been a criminal defense attorney. How about you, Alice? Um, so I actually started out my career as a civil defense attorney. Um, and while that's you know not quite the same as being criminal defense, um, you face a lot of the same things. You are sued. It's on you know whoever sues you, the plaintiff's timeline. Uh, you're handed a bunch of discovery, a lot's asked of you, and you're not really in control of the litigation. So in terms of kind of the life cycle and the experience, I had that on the civil side. Um, mm-hmm. And it, I mean, it was a great, I never thought I wanted to leave it. Um, and then this opportunity came up to be a prosecutor and it had been a dream of mine at one point in my life. Um, but I, I loved actually doing civil defense work. Um, just a very different practice when someone's suing you. Right. Now, you guys, I'm sure you're both aware that my primary work is I work in wrongful convictions. So there's a lot of prosecutors out there that don't like, um, and a lot of cops that don't like. But as I, as I always, as I always say, you know, people think that I, that, that cops don't like me or that I'm anti-cop. And that's not true because, you know, I expose corrupt cops and nobody hates a corrupt cop more than a good cop, which is, you know, a large majority of them. It's the same thing with prosecutors. You know, I don't, I don't think there shouldn't be prosecutors or that obviously the people shouldn't be locked up in prison. I just want them to play by the rules uh, and, and do things right and fair. And just a couple of weeks ago on Truth and Justice, I had uh, a public defender come on and talk about his experience and his perspective working in criminal law as, as a public defender. And I, I'm gonna, I want to ask you guys kind of the same question I asked him, which is in our criminal justice and where do you see – if Obviously, nothing's perfect, and there's, there's. I'm sure you could name a lot, but if you had to pick one, where do you see the biggest flaw in our criminal justice system, and how do you think it could be fixed? I'll start with Alice. Sure. I, first off, I have to agree with you. We, um, we say this all the time on our podcast. We want wrongful convictions to be um, covered and to be uncovered. We, because mm-hmm. just like you, we want um, corrupt prosecutors, corrupt law enforcement to be rooted out. We, you know, in our experience, they are a small um, portion of the law enforcement community. And both of us are very lucky. We've never had um, the ill fortune of working with someone we thought was corrupt. And you're right. Those of us who are trying to fight the good fight and trying to bring justice to victims, we absolutely want um, any sort of corruption to be rooted out because it gives a bad name to the entire system. And the justice system just isn't just anymore. So, you know, thank you for what you do. and. Um, we have some great friends on that side of the aisle working on wrongful convictions, and we respect their work greatly. So the biggest flaw in the criminal justice system, that's a big question. <laughs> right. Um, 
It doesn't have to be the biggest one, just one that maybe that you see that maybe you're passionate about. Yeah. You know, we we are insulated from this, but I see this in probably smaller um, communities where you may have um, elected uh, district attorneys who may be swayed by a lot of public opinion. I would say the majority uh, of prosecutors that in prosecutions that doesn't happen, but we can we, we cover a lot of these types of cases where um, passions run high. And I think sometimes maybe um, that particular community hasn't seen a case of that um, uh, that size and they're afraid to misstep and in, fr- in being afraid to misstep, they I think do misstep. They either talk too mm-hmm. much or talk too little and let kind of public opinion drive the investigation, which is uh, fraught with error because you have to just follow where the evidence is going. And we've seen this in some of our um, some of the cases we've covered on our podcast. Um, I don't think it's necessarily out of malevolence. I think it's sometimes out of just inexperience. We see that a lot, right? A lot of these smaller communities haven't had to deal with, say, a massive triple murder um, of children, mm-hmm. you know, and and having to to do that for the first time comes with a lot of public pressure, especially if you have a um, situation like that the entire nation, the entire country and world is looking at you. Um, that's a right. lot of pressure for a small, um, a, a small division. Sure, and and kind of on that that same that same thread is you know I I see a big problem when I see a lot of the wrongful convictions that we work. It it seems like because sometimes we're working these cases where it's obvious. You know, I just I just covered a case a couple of weeks ago, um, the Charles Raby case out of out of Houston, Texas, where the prosecutor and the police knew that DNA testing or blood typing testing had come back from underneath the victim's fingernails on a stabbing and that it didn't match the the person that they convicted and they suppressed it, didn't turn it over and then had their expert lie on the, lie on the stand. And it's, it, it's hard. I, I'm always trying to ask the why, right? Like why would you, and, and by the way, he's he sentenced to death. He was, he, it was a capital case. So there, and, and he's now that they've discovered it, the prosecution is now fighting, trying to keep him, from using the new evidence now that they found it and have done DNA testing and are certain he is not responsible, they're fighting him trying to argue that it's time barred that he should have argued it before. And as I said, he's sentenced to death. They're going to murder him. And and I'm always I'm always curious about the why. And one thing that I see as a big problem is in a lot of these, especially bigger cities, is how prosecutors are incentivized. Like it's Closing cases, especially, you know, it's, it's kind of along the same thread, especially a highly publicized case. We have to close the case. We have to get the conviction, you know, and they run on. I've I've tried and won five death penalty cases, and it, and it it seems so often to blur that line of justice where instead of just trying to find, you know, make sure that justice is served, it just becomes about winning. I had a prosecutor tell me in a case that I worked. Um, I sat down and had, had a drink with him. He had tried a case 20 years before that. And he's like, hey, if he didn't do it, then, you know, I'll, he ended up helping us, helping us work to, but the time, I mean, he looked me right in the eye and, and said, look, I don't give a shit. He said, when I, well, he said, it's, it's the police job to find the right person and c- gather the evidence. Once I step into the courtroom, my job is to win. And it's just, it's, it's, it's so upsetting to me. I get what he's saying, but like, I, it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be, you know, where he's just kicking and scratching and screaming, do whatever he's got to do to, win his case, regardless of whether he thinks the person's actually guilty or not. So that's my thing. Uh, Brett, what do you got? <laughs> well, I mean, 
I have, I'll say, I'll say three things to say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, number one, your prosecutor friend that you had a drink with is completely wrong. And, and yeah, he's not ethos, my friend, not by a long yeah, shot. Okay. Well, I don't know. It sounded like maybe you are friendly. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that, like, I hate, I don't want to interrupt you, but just to, to, that story. It was when I kept reaching out to him for an interview, and then he emailed me back and said, "Aren't you the one that called me a psychopath on your podcast?" And I said, okay. "I didn't. I guess call you're not you a psychopath. <laughs> I implied that you were a psychopath." <laughs> and then he said, and he actually said, "Why don't you come down here and say it to my face?" He's about five foot three, by the way. Uh, so it's, it started. Dang. It started. Small guys off, can be scrappy. So <laughs> right. It started off very confrontational and worked into the drink. Uh, but anyway, proceed. Yeah, I mean, that that way of looking at things is completely wrong. As we mm-hmm. often say, and as we're trained and taught to believe, we, are, we should always wear the white hat. We should always be the good guys. We should always be interested right. in justice. And if justice means the person the police are bringing to you did not do it, or the evidence isn't there, then you need to, you need to turn down that case. And Alice and I turn down cases all the time. And it doesn't mm-hmm. always make the officers we're working with happy, but that's our first job is to determine whether or not there is evidence sufficient to tell a jury beyond a reasonable doubt this person's guilty. And if the answer right. to that is You're no... You're the gatekeepers. Yeah, we're the gatekeepers, exactly. And if the answer to that is no, then no, your job is not to go in there and win at any cost. Now look, if I think the guy's guilty and the evidence is there, obviously I'm going to go in and do everything ethical and legal to win. That is true, mm-hmm. but you got to cross that first threshold. Um, along those lines, you asked, what should we do or what are the problems? Well, I'll tell you, I'd say the biggest problem in the justice system is unsolvable because it's people. You know, I, I think there's this right. notion out there, well, if we just created the perfect system, everything would be fine. And I'm not saying there aren't improvements we could make, but I think people need to recognize that as long as people are in charge of the system and doing the system, there's always this, this problem. And that's why I'm a big, I'm a big fan of, in, of conviction integrity units. I think every yeah. state should have them. I think they should be empowered to actually do things and look at cases and take it out of the hands of the prosecutors who may be emotionally invested at that point. You know, your guy in Houston, those prosecutors are probably kind of blinded by the guilty plea. Like 12 people said this guy was guilty. And to a certain extent, they have an ethical obligation to defend that jury verdict up until some point, which based on what you said, seems like we're past. Um, But I think Mm -hmm. if you have those independent review units it's not going to be perfect and they're not going to catch everything but i think you know they can look at things like we do alice and i do cases um you know we work with maggie freeling a lot and she gave us timogen kinsu's case i don't know if you're familiar with his i've heard you on her show Mm -hmm. but he is so clearly innocent it's kind of like your friend in houston he is completely innocent there's no question about it the prosecution's case was absolute crap they actually didn't really have any evidence that he did it and there is a conviction integrity unit in Michigan, and hopefully they're going to they're gonna do something about that case. But I don't, we don't, you know, I don't speak for Alice. I don't disagree with you at all that, you know, the system is not perfect. It will never be perfect. And I think all we can do is, number one, have a, a way of looking at things. It should be institutionalized in prosecutors that what that prosecutor said to you is dead wrong. And, and that can't be the way we right. approach cases. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And 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 that's you know again, if people think that I'm anti-prosecutor, I'm part of my perspective on on truth and justice is so I was an arson investigator for 16 years before 
I was doing the podcast. I was, I was, you know, on a regular basis taking cases to prosecutors and our local prosecutors around here, uh, they were tough and they were tough on me. I mean, we would build a case, put it together and present it. And it was oftentimes where they'd say, that's not enough. And that's how it should be. Yeah. And, And there were people that walked, people that, you know, that I was, you know, I was frustrated because I felt that they were guilty. But at the end of the day, it was like, no, they're right. That's not enough. It's not enough proof. Arson's hard to prove. You know, you know. They say arson investigation is junk science. It's really not. When it becomes junk science, just like a lot of uh, fields of experts, is when someone tries to say that they can determine something that they can't possibly determine. Like I can tell you, I know the fire started there. I know this was the ignition source, and here's circumstantial evidence as to why I think this person did it. When they come in and say, "Nope, I know it was this. I know it was that person, and I know it started at two fifty-eight p.m." No, you don't. You don't, you can't possibly know that. Um, but yeah, I agree that, that, that the, the prosecutor should be the gatekeeper. And, and you mentioned people. And that's one of the biggest things as I'm looking at these, at these cases and, and having served on a couple of felony juries uh, at trials. I, I think that, you know, the people is, is a problem. And I think juror, juries are a problem, not necessarily that, you know, the individual people that are there, but I, I don't like the process. And and trying to look at, you know, for example, the and I know there's arguments for it, but, you know, it would always trying to look at like what could be a solution. I was thinking, you know, what if we did away with peremptory strikes? You know, where if you have to have a reason for a legitimate legal reason to get people off the jury, not because and I've talked to prosecutors and I've talked to defense attorneys that, you know, if they have a black client, a black defendant where the. Uh, the 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 defense is trying to get the jury stacked with with people of color, and the prosecutor is trying to you know stack the jury with white women or you know all these little demographic things. And it's it, as as they've ex- explained this to me over years and and just knowing so many people that work in the field, it's like so you're literally saying that you're 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 less worried about the legal arguments and you're and you're trying to have a better bias in your favor with the jury and 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 i don't know that that's that's the solution you guys could probably speak to why what would you think if you weren't allowed to do peremptory strikes if you had to have only strike jurors with cause we barely use them i mean my experience like they yeah you just i mean it wouldn't be a big loss in my mind i don't know if alice has strong feelings no i I, actually it's hard um it's so easy to strike people for cause to be totally honest I don't know if people right. have watched like too much 30 Rock or TV and they know the crazy things to say to get off of a jury. But to be honest, I don't use peremptory strikes. So I'm like, gosh, I need enough people on a jury who just at <laughs> least can think logically, understand right. like complex sentences. And, and that's not, uh, that's not uh, meant to be degrading, but truly um, you have to ask questions in a way because trials are long and they're, they're kind of exhausting. You need someone with the stamina to be able to sit through it. So I'm most of the time, looking like, do you look like you're in pain? I, I mean, truly, can you can you sit through trial on a hard bench and like mm-hmm. read little, you know, little scripts um, uh, right. because you're going to be looking at a lot of documents? I'm not even thinking about peremptory because by cause, we're already striking a lot of people. So I don't, yeah, I don't disagree with that. The last jury trial I had, we had a guy, this is, I guess, a reason to have them. So we had a guy who came in and he had written on his jury questionnaire that he didn't trust the government that he'd had really bad experiences with prosecutions and and he did not think he could be fair is what he said in his jury questionnaire. So the way it works is if somebody says something like that, at some point you're going to have a moment where 
Everybody kind of goes back and it's just you and the defense attorney and the judge. And you're talking about that with him. And so the judge, mm-hmm. you know, talked about him and he sort of explained why he felt that way. And then the judge was like, well, do you think you could be fair? And he was like, yeah, I guess I could be fair. And so the judge said, well, I'm not going to strike him if he said he could be fair. And we're like, I mean, yeah, he said he could be fair here, but in his but he questionnaire, said he didn't. That he couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> so we used a strike on him. Like, that's an example of okay. when we used a strike. That makes so, sense. So, you know, I mean, maybe have fewer of them. You don't have that many is one thing. Right. Um, so maybe if you only had like, it's kind of like a challenge flag in the NFL. You only have a couple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because <laughs> if you only had a couple. Yeah, exactly. If you only had a couple, then if you have a situation like that, you can use it. But it's hard to say you could unfairly, you know, influence the jury too much if you don't have that many to use. Yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to think of because I you know I, I look at this stuff, I see the, the the worst of the worst, right? Flaws in the legal system and the cases that I cover, and it's just hard to come up with a rule that would just work. You know, because like like that, there's an example of why that would be a bad thing to 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 get rid of them. I also don't like uh, the. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on the name. They call it dynamiting the jury. Uh, ah, the dynamite charge. Yeah, Alfred yeah. charge. What Alfred charge? No, that's Alfred plea. No, <sighs> I had Batson. I had, and that's not right. I had Alfred. I can't pull the pull the name. Essentially, when the jury comes back and says we're deadlocked, and the judge forces them to go back and continue to deliberate, right. tells them this is a very important case. You know, we've spent a lot of resources and time. If there's any way you can reach a verdict, you should. Yeah, they call it the dynamite charge. You're right about that. I forget the case that it's based right. on. Right. Yeah, I, I, I've just I've seen so many cases where that resulted in because I a lot of times I interview jurors from these cases, you know, and and Ed H case was a big one we worked with. That it's he an Allen released. charge, by the way. Allen charge. There it is. Yeah, and there was he had two Allen charges. Twice the jurors the jury said they're hopelessly deadlocked. At one point they were seven to five, and then two days later they came back and it was like nine to two. And then another two days go by, and they say the the, jur- the the foreman wrote, "We are hopelessly deadlocked," and that drives me. Be- so at that point, f- from just reading reading through the jurors' notes and all this, it's like they they have heard the evidence, they have discussed the evidence, and there are two people that are convinced that he's not guilty, and they're continuing to go back. And then so they 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 gave that we're hopelessly deadlocked note to the judge at eight o'clock at night on Thursday. And then Friday morning they come in and they they head back to deliberate at nine o'clock and at nine fifteen they have a verdict. And I talked to the jurors and I talked to the two jurors that changed their mind. One of them bawled on their on the air to me when she found out that you know he was really actually innocent. Because I asked, I said what changed? What happened? She said nothing. They just everybody was mad at me and they said we weren't going to get we were going to get sequestered over the weekend. And so finally I was like fine. Like someone shouldn't get their life taken away because I give up. And and those and those Allen charges are result. Now I've had judges argue to me that you know there's so much time and money that goes into a trial and to have to do it all over again. They've got to give everybody their best effort. I just look at it the other way and say, say yeah, but that's that's someone's life. Someone better be pretty damn sure that they're that they that they're that they are going to convict and they think that they're guilty, not be forced into that. Because I've been in those those jurors. I was the other way around. I was in a. Uh, an armed robbery jury, and it was a, an aiding and abetting case where the guy was the guy was there, but he wasn't maybe holding the gun, but he was stealing the jewels out of, or stealing the cash out of the safe and tied the guy up. And we get back and deliberate, and it was it was two days of one lady just saying, "Well, 
I just don't think, you know, the judge is very clear in Michigan. It was, you know, if you, if, if he was there participating, he's guilty of the crime. And so she's like, I just don't think he should go to prison if he didn't actually hold the gun. Do you believe there was an armed robbery? Yes. Do you believe that he was there participating? Yes. That equals guilty. No, I just can't. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is before I ever did this kind of work. You know, she ended up caving after two days and said fine, but she didn't have a, a good argument. And then I was part of a jury where uh, it was a drunk driving case where, in my opinion, she got wrongfully get, get convicted. I got and, – and I, I think she was probably drunk. I've heard the your evidence. story about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did, oh, did, you know, the funny part of the story is that prosecutor, I didn't realize it until after I uh, – I used to go to play trivia at a local bar every Thursday night. And I'm sitting there playing trivia, and I'm looking at the guy running. I'm like, God, he looks familiar. He looks familiar. And I went up, and I turned in an answer to a question. And I said, you look familiar to me. He's like, yeah, you were on my fucking jury. And I heard your podcast about how I was wrongfully convicted. <laughs> <laughs> I said, she was. And he's like, he's like, what I couldn't tell you was that she blew a point whatever on the scene. But, but you know, those breathalyzers on scene aren't admissible. Right. So they could only give the breathalyzer. And I told him, I was, I was like, your cop said that he determined that she was drunk based on this test, and he said that test is seventy gives a seventy percent likelihood that she was intoxicated. I was like, to me, thirty percent. Didn't she admit she was drinking po- though? <laughs> she admitted that um, she yeah she had had a drink at the at the at the her restaurant like an hour before or whatever. See, they, they always say it's just one. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I was a fireman for a long time. I've been to a lot of accidents. You been drinking, sir? Well, I had a couple. <laughs> they, they always had a couple. <laughs> you could smell it on them. But yeah, I was like, and I was, it, it, we had a laugh about it, but I was like, I was like, man, when, you're, when your officer said there's only a 70% likelihood that she's intoxicated, to me, 30% is reasonable doubt, isn't it? He's like, well, I guess I'm glad you were the alternate. <laughs> <laughs> Because they convicted her in about five minutes after I after I left. All right, so enough en- enough about all those those stories. But but I appreciate you guys answering that and what and what you do because what we need is more good prosecutors and and of course then I'd get I'd be out of a job if we had all a whole bunch of good prosecutors. Need the couple it would, bad wouldn't ones be the worst to, thing though, right? <laughs> right, no, it wouldn't. I'd find something else to do. <laughs> so we, we're going to talk about a case today. We're going to talk about the disappearance of is it Asha or Asha? How does she pronounce Asha it? Asha degree. Yeah, Asia Degree. She this she disappeared on Valentine's Day in 2000. She was nine years old in North Carolina. Really perplexing case. I don't I don't I don't quite even understand what the hell is happening here. So why don't you guys kind of break down what are the basics of of the case? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, thanks for letting us talk about this case. This case I think strikes us and, and uh, you know hopefully a lot of people out there. Um, because it seems like it came out of nowhere. Um, Aisha mm-hmm. it was a nine-year-old girl and she had an older brother and, um, you know, her parents were married. They all lived together and it seemed to be an uneventful night. Uh, it was February 13th. She was at home. It was storming and she went to bed. Um, her dad checked in on her at about 2.30 in the morning as he was headed to bed and she was sleeping in her bed. Um, and she was actually in the same room as her brother that they shared a bedroom. And sometime after he checked on her, she got out of bed of her own accord, it seems like, picked up a bag that she had packed, her backpack with a few of her items, 
and um, not necessarily items you think of for running away. Um, some candy, uh, you know, pens, a nightshirt, that sort of thing. And uh, she walked out the door and um, she is, it's storming. It is a torrential downpour that night. And she lives kind of in a rural area, but there's like a two lane country road, essentially. And there's not really anyone out there, um, but she's walking and she is on the side of the road and a couple truckers see her call it in. You know, they're worried about seeing this person walking in the rain on the side of the road around 3.34 a.m. One trucker kind of circles a couple times to try and find her, but she sees the trucker um, turn around and she runs and she is never seen again. She, the only sign um, they find of her in a search the next morning at 6.30, her mom checks in on her and realizes that she's not there. They call the cops. The search party goes out and um, there's just, there's no indication that she didn't have, you know, a tumultuous childhood. There was no fight. Nothing seemed to be out of the ordinary. She just up and left in the middle of the night. And, um, I think the next day, about a mile south of her house, they, uh, there was a shed that a neighbor had that, you know, stored furniture and whatnot. And they found, um, some signs of her. It was like candy wrappers from a basketball mm-hmm. game that she had had. And the, kind of the most bizarre thing of this entire case. They found a picture of a girl about nine years old, an African-American girl who is not Asia, and no one's ever been able to identify who that girl is. Nobody knows who it is, but Asia had that picture with her in that shed. And I'll let Brett kind of take it away to what we know happened or all that we do know that happened. Yeah, that was really all they found in the initial search, despite, you know, a very big search. And then a few years later, a guy several miles up that two-lane highway, I think like 20 miles up that two-lane highway, a guy is in his bulldozer clearing a lot for like a driveway. And as he does that, he uncovers a black plastic bag. So he gets out of his bulldozer, he gets the black plastic bag, he opens it up, and there's another black plastic bag inside and he opens that up and inside that bag is Aisha's backpack and but that's all they don't find any other evidence of her they do a search of that area now it's a very difficult area to search but they don't find any other sign of her so an incredibly mysterious case it was like a year and a half later when they found the backpack it was it was I forget the exact amount of time but it was it was years um from Uh when she disappeared so, very strange case, and a case that really got very little coverage at the time, um, shockingly, frankly. I mean, you have a nine-year-old girl who literally walks off into a storm for no apparent reason and vanishes into the night, and it was just a case we wanted to cover. It's been covered a little bit. I feel like it's being covered more in the true crime space, but you know, particularly that picture. I mean, the fact that no one knows, I feel like the key is the picture. I feel like if you identify the girl in the picture, you take a big step to figuring out what happened. So we wanted to get that picture out to see if anybody had seen it. Where can can people see that? Do you have it on on your guys' website? We have it on our website. Uh, True Crime Garage covered the case a few weeks after we did. They've got it up on theirs as well. But yeah, I would encourage everybody to, to, to check out that picture and just see if you recognize this girl, because 
None of her family recognizes this person. No one, none of her friends recognize this person. It's not a person who went to school with her. And so the question of where that photograph could have come from. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of questions in this case, obviously. Right. And not a lot of, yeah. not a lot of information, but that photograph feels like the one tangible thing where we actually could make a difference. Do, uh, do me a favor and make sure that you guys, um, Send that photo to Erica, and and when we publish this episode, I'll make sure we put it out on our social media and stuff too. Um, that would be amazing. Help, Thank uh, you. Helps help spread the word. Yeah, it's super perplexing. And then, I mean, gosh, so many questions. Like, why why would she leave? And there there was no from from what I read about the case. There's there's no evidence that she had any problems at home. There's no allegations of abuse. Nothing like that. Yeah, I mean. When when something so bizarre happens, of course, rumors swirled, you know, people, people jump to conclusions based on really zero evidence that they think, you know, was she abused? Did, did she actually have a very abusive home? Uh, was she being sexually abused? These were questions that were swirling, but based on no evidence. And that's partly why we wanted to cover it. You know, our, mm-hmm. our angle is because we are prosecutors, we, we uh, proceed in all of our cases on the podcast, evidence-based. And, you know, you asked um, where people could see the picture. We actually put up all the sources that we use on our website for every single episode for that very reason. We want people to site check us, right? Um, we're trying to get to um, some semblance or one step closer to truth. And in this case, we, you know, we scoured the newspaper articles at the time, any police reports there were, and there was absolutely no evidence, like you said, of any abuse, even though rumors swirled. And I think that's incredibly damaging for the family. Because sure. they have lost a daughter, lost a sister, and I can't even imagine the pain as a parent to be going through that. And then for the whispers in your town and the nation to begin saying, is it because you were abusive? Um, you know, we, we point out uh, a lot of rumors, you know, the, the kind of social media world says that she was very sheltered. We also didn't see signs of that. Um, She's a nine-year-old girl or a nine-year-old period. I would think most nine-year-olds probably don't live a super independent life from their parents. Mm -hmm. Um, But we showed that, you know, that weekend before she disappeared, she was a really good basketball player. She played on a basketball uh, team and she had a big game that Saturday uh, with her team. She slept over at her cousin's house uh, who lived close by the night after the basketball game. They went to church that Sunday morning. They went to church every Sunday. You know. That alone tells me that she she's not that sheltered. She actually, it sounds like a very normal, regular nine-year-old life. Basketball team, mm-hmm. sleepovers, church, and schools. She went to a, you know, the local school. So we put all that out there to kind of push against the the uh, evidenceless um, theory right. that somehow she she had either a very tortured home life or that, and she may have, we're just saying there's no evidence of it. Right. Yeah, it's so perplexing. Like the, I didn't realize I knew about the that they found the backpack. I didn't realize that it was double bagged in in two trash bags. Like I mean that that seems to scream foul play of some kind. Yeah, it also seems like almost someone saving it as like a trophy, right? Because you're protecting it. Right. You put it in two, but you didn't just throw it in the dumpster where it would never be found. Like you've right. buried it in a place you know. You've double bagged it. I don't know. I mean, it's a. I mean, yeah, I think you're 100% right. I think there's a child predator out there who, who took this girl and, and, and murdered her. I would love to think, you know, that that's not what happened, but I think it is. And we need to find that person because, as you well know, that's not the kind of person who strikes once. 
and then stops. And look, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting things about the case. I think it's interesting that it's not more well-known. You know, I think it's interesting that there was no sort of national story about this. If you try and find stories about it, there's a really good Jet Magazine article about it, but that's about it, you know? And I, I mean, I just think that's, it's tragic on so many levels. One other thing that screams foul play here is that she, uh, evidence of her in the shed was one mile south of her home. She was found 20 miles north of her home. In other words, she was traveling one direction and she couldn't have walked 20 miles um, in right. that, that amount of time. So she was in a car and it was the opposite direction. You know, we have theories on our episode of what happened, but I think that's incredibly telling that she was headed the opposite direction that she was actually found. Well, and she wasn't found, right? Where her backpack I'm sorry, from. you're right. She wasn't yeah, found. Yeah. Her bag was found. Right. And and when you say that where she was she was seen where where she was seen by the trucker was 20 miles north? No, no, no. She saying? was seen right by her house. She okay. was seen okay. so they they think it's her because it was within a mile of her house and then the evidence uh-huh. of her in a shed with the picture of the girl um, that uh-huh. we can't identify and kind of her candy wrappers. What that was one mile from her house, which I can imagine her being able to walk a mile um, in right. in the amount of time. But where the backpack was found was twenty miles north. Yeah, so twenty miles in the opposite direction of the direction she was walking. Yeah, that's uh, it's God, it's sickening. And I, I want to point out too. I apologize, I didn't mention this earlier, but um, kind of the mission of the prosecutor's podcast is if I you you guys cover these cold cases, right? You're trying to bring bring light and attention and exposure to a lot of these cold cases. Yeah. And not every case we cover is a cold case. I mean, some of what we do is bringing sort of our training and our experience and our sort of perspective to the cases. One thing we like to do is explain to people why things happen the way they do, like why the sure. why the criminal case went the way it did or why this piece of evidence came in or why it didn't or why it shouldn't have. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, one thing we definitely want to do is these cases that are cold, bring as much attention to them as possible. You know, attention solves cases. I think that's 100% true. We've seen that with the, the Gabby Petito case. Um, right. Whatever you think of how much attention it got, the fact it got that much attention is why they found her body as quickly as they did. It's probably why they'll eventually get a conviction in that case. And if, you know, I wish we could have that kind of attention on every one of these cases. Right. I'm I'm curious about you know I was, I was gonna say that you know you mentioned this case didn't get much exposure well she was a black girl in in 2000 and and the Gabby Petito case brought up um, it'll probably be a month ago by the time this this airs when it first happened but you know it, it brought exactly what you just said it got all this exposure and it brought up a lot of people talking about you know like missing and murdered indigenous women and how there's there's nobody looking for them and they're not the sexy story that's all over the place and I wonder if that plays into why there wasn't national coverage of Asia's case. Yeah, and and I just want to say this. True crime people got a lot of criticism in Gabby's case, but the reality of the situation is, you know, Aisha's case, if if all of us had been around in 2000, we would have been talking about that case. You know, even if they weren't talking about it on the nightly news, you know, podcast and the true crime community focuses far more on, on black, indigenous, you know, marginalized communities far more than your your nightly news ever does. And I just, I thought that criticism, to the extent it came to the true crime community, was completely misdirected. 
I, I thought it was misdirected because I think there's something to be said about the the lack of exposure with uh, you know and, and like Payne Lindsay right now is is this current season up and vanishes covering um, Michigan murdered Indigenous women. You know, there, there's like you said, there's a lot of a lot of people working to try to bring exposure, but the the argument is not. People were mad because Gabby's case got so much attention and they found her. And, and to me, that's the wrong argument. The argument isn't that her case should have had less attention. The argument should be that look what we can do as a community, as, as, as I always say, you know, the power of ordinary people across the world, the, what we can do when we give something that much attention. She deserved 100%. every bit of that. Absolutely. But, but so yeah, do all these other people. So did Asia. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that, especially this day and age in 2021. Maybe back in um, another generation, there were limited, you know, news hours. But now with anyone able, you know, with a microphone able to put out a podcast, anyone able to post on social media, I, I don't want to say it's infinite time, but we have so much more capacity now to focus that type of attention on right. all sorts right. of cases. And so I completely agree with you. I don't think the lesson is let's focus less on a certain type of person, because guess what? If you're missing, I hope everyone, no matter what you look like, purple, green, yellow, you will have that amount of attention. I hope I get that amount of attention if I go missing. And so I think the lesson is, you know, rise all tides. Let's let's turn to these. And another reason that we try to cover cases like Aisha's is we say this a lot on our podcast. People and crowds can solve uh, these cold cases but every passing day is an opportunity lost because memories fade, witnesses die, and people forget things. Just think about what you ate for lunch, right. you know, yesterday, last week. Your memories fade, but people don't realize they may hold the key to cracking a case and they may still hold it, but it, they may not hold it for much longer if they start to die off mm -hmm. because of old age or they stop remembering things because it's been so long and it was an insignificant um, piece of, you know, an event at that time. And so we, we, we harp on that and we try to find these cases to where we think someone really does know something, you know, um, there's just not much about Asia. There's not much about a lot of these, um, disappearances that we think someone may know something. And Asia's case is a good example of that because 16 years after she went missing, the FBI released information that someone had seen a girl matching her description, getting into like a mint green Thunderbird like a 1976 mint green Thunderbird, which is the mm -hmm. kind of thing, if that information had been out in 2000, you can imagine right. people being like, well, I know that car, right? But in 2016, by that point, the chances anybody's going to say, oh, yeah, I remember that mint green Thunderbird, you know, aren't great. So the sooner yeah, the better and it's, that stuff. And that's, you know, I, I love there's so many short form podcasts out there that are just always covering a new case every week. You know, what, what the, the work you two are doing, you mentioned true crime garage generation. Why I, I should stop naming cause I'll leave a million of them out, but there's, there's just so many good podcasts that are out there. And, and I've heard when I was at um, crime con, there was at one of the panels that I was speaking on. So people were talking about, well, there's, there's some sensationalism and entertainment. Why would, but, but there, there is a value. There is, there is a, there, there's a massive value. When when Nick and the captain see something like this going on and they just, you know, they, they throw out the rundown and say, hey, we're talking about this case this week. And then it brings that exposure and it gets it out to hundreds of thousands of people. I, th I think it's awesome. And it, I'm, I'm really impressed with the work you guys do. Um, what is your website for people to go to, to check out 
you know, the documents, pictures, stuff like that for this case and any others. It's prosecutorspodcast.com. If you go there, you'll see all our cases and every one of them has a sources link and you can, you can check out the pictures. You can see the sources. A lot of them will link to things like the FBI's page. If there is one where mm-hmm. if you have information you want to share, you can share it. We always say to people, if you don't trust the FBI and you want to leave the tip with us, we'll make sure it gets to the right people. But yeah, prosecutorspodcast.com for all that stuff. Awesome. Well, listeners, make sure you check that out. Check out this case. Does, does Asia's case have any kind of reward or anything like that going on? Is there still anything active? I don't know if there's a reward, but the FBI is definitely still investigating this case. So, you know, this is a cold case, but it's not a case nobody's working on. So if you have information, you can make a difference. Awesome. Well, well, thank you guys for that and, and all of your work. Their names are Brett and Alice. The podcast is called The Prosecutors. Check it out. It's definitely going to be your next true crime binge. Give it a listen. Check out their website and make a difference. Thanks, guys, for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Bob. Thank you. Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.